What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of What If I Told You How Religion Ruined Me and Jesus Saved Me. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so thankful that you're here, and I'm incredibly excited to get into um, the meat of what we have to talk about today. Now, this week's episode, y'all, is going to be a lot different, truthfully much different than um, pretty much every episode thus far. And the reason for that is I thought at this point um, in the journey of this podcast, I thought it was important to take some time to sit down and to really address and talk about um, some pieces of scripture, some pieces of the Bible that people find scary, intimidating, um, even contradictory, confusing some other things. But furthermore, to take the those pieces of the Bible that we're going to talk about today um, and talk about how those verses and those passages fit in to the gospel of God's grace. Because I think a lot of times, especially if you aren't keen on the, the world of um, church and the world of Christianity, a lot of these verses that you find in the Bible and a lot of these verses that people preach sometimes um, can be intimidating. They can be condemning. They can seem very shameful. They can seem really confusing. A lot of times um, they can seem contradictory to each other. And so I want to take some time to address a few of those today. Um, And so that's what we're going to get into today. But before we do that, I want to point a couple of things out. First and foremost, I want you to know that the purpose of this episode, y'all, is I don't want to call, I'm not here to call anyone out on anything, okay? The purpose of this episode is to simply point you in the right direction of interpreting scripture clearly. Now hear me, it is so incredibly vital, it is so important to see scripture the correct way. And for a lot of us, I think we spend our lives, we see the Bible truthfully for something that is not. We see the Bible for something that is not, whether that was, you know, just kind of, um, that was poured and ingrained into us, or it's just kind of like native to us. We see the Bible for something that it's not. And while I'm here, let me tell you what the Bible is not. The Bible is not an instruction manual, y'all. Okay, I'm just laying foundation for where we're going today. The Bible is not an instruction manual. The Bible is not rules on how to be a Christian or rules on Christian living. The Bible is not the way to heaven and it's not some simply a guide to moral living. While you can use it to kind of, you know, be a little bit of a guide to living a moral life, it is not simply a guide to moral living. What is the Bible? Listen, y'all, the Bible is one giant, so complex yet so simple story. The Bible is a story of God's incredible grace. And it's a story of his love for you and for me. It's a story. And the reason I say that is because, listen, the way you view what the Bible is determines the way that you process what's within these pages. Let me say that again. The way that you see the Bible directly affects and directly determines the way you process what's within these pages. Because when you see the Bible as just an instruction manual or a rule book, you'll start to see the scriptures inside of it as just that. And if I can be really frank, I really think that seeing the Bible as, you know, 
an instruction manual and seeing the scriptures within the Bible as just kind of an instruction or rules and how that and on, on how we're supposed to live. I really believe that that is not the framework in which God intends us to read this book. I really believe that. That is not the framework in which God wants us to read the Bible. But when instead you see it as a story of the redemptive power of God's grace, right? The, the, the story of God's love for you and for me, it changes the way you see everything. It really, really does. And that leads me to the second thing that I want to point out, which is this. In a very similar light, this is so important. Every verse you read in the Bible, catch this, because this is important. Every verse that you read in the Bible, it needs, not it should be, it needs to be filtered through the lens of the cross. It needs to be filtered through the lens of the cross. And what do I mean by that? Listen, everything in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, right? So Genesis to Malachi, everything in the Old Testament is a foreshadow and it points to the cross. So everything you read in the Old Testament, you can relate directly, directly to the cross. And everything after the story of Jesus' death, basically from from Acts on to the end of Revelation, Everything after the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it points us back to the story of the cross. So if you didn't catch that, everything before the cross points forward to it. And everything after the cross in the Bible points back at it. Why? Because the cross is where the essence of the gospel is found. The place where Christ not only died for you, but he died as you is the place where the essence of the gospel can be found. So that is why all of scripture points back to the cross. All of scripture points back to Jesus. It points back to Jesus. So let me encourage you with this. Whatever you're reading, everything from Genesis chapter one to Revelation chapter two, that's the beginning to the end of scripture. It needs to be filtered through the lens of Jesus and the lens of the cross. So if I can give you a quick practical tip, I would say this. I would say when you're reading scripture, it's going to be kind of key for you to ask yourself. So you're reading scripture. I want to encourage you to start asking yourself, how does this relate to the cross? How does this relate to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because everything needs to be filtered through that place. And when you start to ask yourself that question, suddenly things just start to make a lot of, a lot of sense. And so the reason I wanted to point these things out before we dive into today's, um, you know, really the meat of today's episode is this. When you learn to rightly divide, or in other words, rightly interpret scripture, two big things happen. Number one, you start to see scripture for what it really is. When you start to see scripture the right way, and you can, you can rightly divide and properly interpret scripture, you start to see it for what it really is. And that is not that it's a rule book or an instruction manual, but rather it's a, it's a giant story of God's redemptive work in you and me. Number two, and this is the really cool thing, when you start to learn how to rightly interpret scripture, it really, the Bible starts to come alive. I promise it does. When you start to see everything through the lens 
of the new covenant, through the lens of the cross, through the lens of the resurrection, the Bible just comes alive. You start to see things you never saw before. You start to have revelation that you never had before. You start to experience the love of God on a different level, on a different framework, on a different um, spectrum than you ever have. I promise reading scripture the right way and interpreting scripture through the right lens changes everything and it makes the Bible come alive in your mind. So with that foundation and with that framework in mind, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to take five pieces of scripture. I asked a few people and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue to ask people and I'm going to post on social. So if you want to put in a suggestion for possibly part two of this episode, you can do that. However, I'm going to take five pieces of scripture that that people have found in my life, people have found intimidating or contradictory to the story of God's grace. And we're going to learn to put them in perspective. And with that, you're going to learn how to see the entire Bible. You're going to begin to learn to see the entire Bible through the lens of the new covenant, through the lens of the cross, through the lens of God's grace. So, With all that being said, y'all, let's get right into it, to the first scripture. All right, y'all, here we go. Here's the first scripture. It is found in John chapter 15, okay? John chapter 15, verse 2. If you're hearing some pages, I hope you're hearing that. If you're hearing some pages, that's because I got my real Bible with me. You know how, like, every preacher, <laughs> like, gives props to people who have their actual Bible with them? I'm that guy today. I'm not going to brag, but I'm that guy today. Okay, John 15, verse 2, it says this. This is Jesus speaking. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, God removes. He cuts off, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Now, this is potentially intimidating to some people. This is potentially scary because the way this typically is preached is, yo, if you're not fruitful, God's going to cut you off and he's going to cast you into the fire, right? That's what we hear all the time. God's going to cut you off. He's going to cast you in the fire. That's what some, um, and actually most translations read. Most translations read that that every unfruitful branch is cut off, cut off. And that's why it's kind of scary because then it puts pressure on us to perform. It puts pressure on us to bear fruit, which what is fruit It's typically seen in the form of, um, traditions and behavior. Um, and so it's pressure to perform and that's why it's typically intimidating, typically scary and typically shameful, um, in that sense. Now, what we need to understand and understand before I get into it, know that I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take every single one of these scriptures. I'm going to talk about why it's scary, why it's intimidating. I'm going to put it in context. Okay. Because everything that you need or everything that you read through the Bible needs to be put in context to who's writing it, who they're writing to the time they're writing, the setting in which they're writing it. That's the beauty of studying the Bible and not just reading it is you get to see the context because as a lot of preachers say, um, any piece of text without context, you're just left with a con. And so anyway, um, we're going to, we're going to put some context to it and then we're going to relate it back to the story of God's grace and how it fits into 
that entire picture. So I'm super excited. So what you need to know about this verse. So it's Jesus speaking. Jesus speaking, and he's using um, a, a picture as he normally does. In this case, he's using a vine and a branches. The verse right before this, he says, I am the I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, if you're not able to put that picture together, if you're not catching the picture, he's basically saying, I am the source, you are the branch, right? So if you think of a vine, think of a, um, a vineyard, right? You think of a vine, that is what produces the fruit that goes on the branches. So let's put it in grape form, right? So you so you have the vine which gives life to the branch and the branch bears the grape, whatever fruit it is, but it all stems from the vine. So Jesus is saying, I am the vine, I am the source, you are the branch. You bear the fruit. And so he continues on to say, every branch, now most translations read, that is that is unfruitful are cut off from me and those who are fruitful are pruned. Now, here's what we need to understand, y'all. Yes, while most translations read this as cut off, every unfruitful branch is cut off. Understand this, the Greek word here for where it says cut off, the Greek word actually translates to raise or lift up. Now, in the on running the risk of sounding a little bit um, contrary to a lot of preachers, I would say this, is, this isn't the best translation of this word right here. I would say that the, the better translation for this word right here would be to lift up, not to cut off. I'm not even going to try and pronounce the Greek word that is used here, but just know that it really means at its core to raise or to lift up. Now, if we want to take it outside of the just the Greek context, think about this. Why in the world would we think that God just chops us away if we're not bearing, quote, behavioral fruit, right? If we're not doing, if we're not following the rules, if we're not, um, if we're not meeting our church's standards, if we're wearing clothes that aren't modest enough, if we're, if we're, if we're doing X, Y, or Z, right? Why do we think that God is just going to cut us off? Cause I'll say this, yo, if you think that's what God does, you're contradicting a l- way more of the Bible than just this one verse. If, if you think that this verse is saying that God is going to cut you off, that God is going to get rid of you, that God is going to throw you into the fire simply for being unfruitful, you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. It, it, it doesn't make sense to me why we have this mindset. It, we have scriptures that say, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. We, it makes more sense in context with the entire rest of the Bible for this translation to actually read any branch that is unfruitful, he lifts up any branch that does not bear fruit i lift up i lift up so what we also need to understand too is is if we put this in perspective of what jesus is saying as a whole right a little bit of a way to get some context i've said this before on the podcast is to read a little bit of verses before this and a little bit a little bit of the verses after this so we're going to do that 
And so what we see is Jesus telling a story and what he's essentially trying to say here for me, this is my interpretation of this scripture, but what I think Jesus is really trying to say here is just really point out our need to abide in him, to rest in him, to remain in his, uh, and, and, and to remain in the message of his grace, to remain in him. Because he continues on in verse, um, in verse four, he two literally two verses later, y'all, he says this, remain in me and I in you just as a branch, a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine so neither can you unless you remain in me. So Jesus is really just pointing out our need to remain in him. Now, what does that look like? It, it looks like just simply trusting him to do the work in you. But as far as our fruitfulness goes, and I'm using a lot of like Bible words and a lot of like church words, so I hope you're catching this. But as far as like your fruit goes, Jesus is simply emphasizing the need to remain in him. He's essentially, he's essentially pointing out to his audience that you cannot bear fruit apart from me. And so if you want to bear fruit, it's not going to happen through your own effort. If you want to bear fruit, it's not going to happen in your own way. It's going to happen by remaining in me. Now let's take a second and and contextualize what does fruit even mean? Because a lot of times it means the church's standards, it means the church's traditions, it means the church's rules that we grow up in. It means like, you know, not wearing spaghetti straps and it means like all this kind of stuff. But what does fruit mean? Well, it's the fruit of the spirit, which is what? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. I think that's all of them. I may not have them all, but you get the point. It's not necessarily behavior. It's heart stuff. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's hard stuff. And Jesus is saying, you aren't going to have any of that apart from me. That's what Jesus is saying in this verse. He's not saying that to intimidate us, that if you don't produce your fruit, then you're going to get cut off. No, he's actually saying, you literally cannot produce fruit. You can't. But if you're struggling a little bit in your life, I think it's going to be better translated to say, I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to lift your head. Think about, let's think about it in, in natural terms. Okay. Natural terms. Let's think about, um, let's think about the, a, a vine dresser. What do they do? If, if a branch is struggling, right? What do you do? You don't just cut it off. If you want it to be better, you don't cut it off. What does a vine dresser do? It lifts the branch up to see what? To see the sun. You lift the branch up to see the sun. And in a similar way, Jesus is saying in this passage, if you're struggling, I'm going to lift you up so you can see me. Because when you see me, then you can produce and bear fruit. That's good news. That's where it fits into the message of the, of the gospel. If you're struggling, listen, I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to lift your head. He is the lifter of our head. I'm going to show you me. I'm going to remind you of who I am, who I've made you to be. And that's where our fruit comes from. Yo, it's called the fruit of the spirit, by the way. It's not the fruit of the believer. It's not the fruit of Jaron. No, it's the fruit of the spirit. He's the one that produces it in your life. All you got to do is simply bear it. You're not a part of any of the work. It changes everything. 
when you see it in the context of the gospel, when you filter this passage through the cross, it changes everything. John 15, great passage. I'm glad we got to address that. He's not going to cut you off, y'all. He's not going to cut you off just because you're not doing a great job. He's going to lift you up. All right, let's go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Now, there's a couple of ones that I'm going to address in in James chapter 2. But first, let's start in verse 10. Okay? Verse 10 is where we're going to start. James chapter 2, verse 10. Let me flip to it. Sorry. Okay. James chapter 2, verse 10 says this. For whoever keeps the entire law, yet fails in one point, is guilty of breaking it all. For whoever keeps the entire law, yet fails in one point, is guilty of breaking it all. Now, that pretty much at face value is kind of scary. And if you don't know how to really interpret scripture the right way, that's really easy to see that as just kind of a list of rules, right? If you break one rule, you break them all. That's often said in church. And so it's really easy to see the Bible through that. If you just see that verse with the wrong idea, with the wrong interpretation, with the wrong context, it's really easy to start to see the Bible as a list of rules and take it outside of the context of the gospel. So here's a little context surrounding this verse. Here's what you need to understand. This 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 uh, this is in James, the book of James, and James is a highly highly relational book. I promise this matters. James is an incredibly relational book. He deals with person to person relationships in this book. And in this particular passage right here, What he says here, he's addressing, if you read a little bit before this verse, he's addressing people's unwillingness to pick, or people's willingness, I'm sorry, to pick favorites. So essentially the people he's talking to here, they were picking favorites. And and really it was, they were picking rich people above poor people. And so he's addressing that. And keep in mind too that, um, this is why context matters. James is writing to mostly Jewish believers. Now, why does that matter? Why does that matter? Because he was writing to Jewish believers, which means that he, James emphasizes a respect for the old covenant and a respect for the Mosaic law. So he's speaking to Jewish believers, so he's speaking Jewish language. Now, that being said, knowing that he's speaking to a Jewish audience, it helps us see super clearly why James says this. And I just said it. He's speaking Jewish language. He's speaking Jewish language. So when he says that in the same way, or I'm sorry, for whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. He's referring back to the law of Moses. He's speaking Jewish language. They knew what he was talking about. He's talking about the law of Moses which included over 600 laws that the Jews had to keep. This is before Jesus, though. So, he refers back to that, and that's why they understand what he's saying. That's why context... So, there's the context surrounding this verse. Here's what you need to know, though. James is right, y'all. Here's where it fits into the lens of the New Testament. James is right. 
Because according to the Mosaic law, according to the law that you and I would have been under if it were not for Jesus, if you broke one, you break all. That was the rule. You had to be perfect or it didn't count. If you break one, you break all. And that was the rule. So yeah, James is right. James isn't fibbing here. He's not joking. He's not downplaying the situation. No, he's right. According to the Mosaic law, in which the Jews lived under, if you break one, you break all. But y'all, here's the gospel. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. Because why? Jesus fulfilled every part of the law on your behalf. Now, if you didn't hear me, this is good news. So catch this. Jesus fulfilled every piece of the law on your behalf. So all of those 633, I believe, 633 laws that the Jews had to keep, he fulfilled every single one of those on your behalf. Fulfilled it. So you don't have to. So now, because Jesus did that, you don't have to live under this law. And therefore, you don't have to live under the fear of it. Y'all, I hope you're getting this. You don't live under the law. Therefore, you don't have to live under the fear of it. So instead of seeing this verse as intimidating, instead of seeing this verse as scary, instead of letting the scripture put some pressure on you to keep rules or keep traditions, you can see this simply as what? As a reminder of the goodness of Jesus, as a reminder of the gift of what he did for you and I, as a reminder of the identity that he's instilled into you. So when I read this now, when I read for whoever keeps the entire law, yet fails at one point is guilty of breaking it all. I stop and say now when in context of filtering this through the lens of the cross, I now say, thank you, Jesus, that you did that for me. Thank you, Jesus, that you did that for me. It's so good. So good to know that. All right, so let's go a few verses down and we're going to read something else right here in the the same chapter, James chapter 2. Now, this is undoubtedly, unquestionably, one of the biggest objections that I get to the gospel one of the biggest objections. Anytime I have a conversation with, um, with particular people and I'm, you know, we're talking about, um, God's grace and how, you know, our right standing with God is not on our own, but it's simply by believing in Jesus and all that good stuff. This verse is one of the first, if not the main verse to get brought up in the conversation. And it's James two verse 17. And it says this faith without works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. Now, this scripture is pretty intimidating to a lot of people. You know, whether it's just we read it or we get it preached to us, it's it's to, you know, it can be really intimidating. It can be really scary and why is that? Because we hear it preached typically as, you know, if you if you if you want to prove your faith to God, you got to do blah 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 blah. And if you want to prove your faith to God, you got to, you know, you got to do your part. And so it leads us, you know, it leads us to leave those situations and think, oh man, well, if I'm not, you know, serving in this area, in this area, and I'm not giving this much in my church, then man, my dedication to God must be lacking. Or if I'm not, you know, if I'm not 
doing my best, or if I'm not, you know, doing a good job at keeping the rules, then, you know, I, oh man, my relationship with God must not be where it needs to be, and I must not have enough faith, and, you know, if I'm not seeing this and this and this happen in my life, then my faith isn't where it needs to be, and if I'm not doing X, Y, and Z, then I guess my, you know, relationship with God is just kind of like backsliding, and, and it leads to all, and it boils down to this, y'all, it just puts a lot of pressure on us to perform. If you're seeing, if you're not seeing it, I hope you are, the common denominator between all of these is it puts pressure. It puts pressure, and that's why we see it as scary or intimidating, because it puts unnecessary pressure. But can I encourage you that even this verse right here where it says faith without works is dead, it seems scary, but I promise you, you don't have to see this as intimidating. You don't have to see this as scary, because it's not. There's good news wrapped around this verse all the way. So here's what you need to know. Context-wise, like I said, we're going to go over the context. So context-wise, it's the same. We just talked about it. We're still in the same um, chapter of the book of James, James chapter 2. So we're still dealing with interpersonal relationships. So James is, is dealing with my relationships with other people. He's not, hear me, he is not dealing with my relationship with God. That's really important to know because that lays a foundation for what we're going to talk about with this particular verse. He's dealing with my relationships with you, not my relationship with God. Okay, so so with that being said, understand this. James saying this is not a conditional statement. It, this is not a conditional statement. It is a descriptive statement. I'll say that again. This is not a conditional statement, right? It doesn't come with conditions saying that if you if you say you have faith you better prove it with your works that's a condition no it is a descriptive statement and what do i mean by that i mean this that faith and good works they go hand in hand they go hand in hand in other words i'll say this just to really put it in perspective of the gospel even more your good works any good work that you do is a byproduct of your faith. It is simply what happens naturally. It's not a, hey, you better do this to prove that you have faith. No, because I have faith, this naturally happens in my life. It is a descriptive statement, not a conditional statement. That is so important to know. And even furthermore, let's really break it down to, to really ask the question, y'all. Let's ask it. What is works? It says faith without works is dead. Well, what is works for a new covenant believer, for which is you and I as believers? What is our work? What does work look like for us? What does good works look like for us? Well, typically it's preached to us as, you know, how much we give and, and how much we serve and, you know, the, the rules that we follow by and the traditions that we adhere to and all this stuff. But let's answer the question. What is good works to new covenant believers? And it's this. Jesus answered this question. He answers this question. When he's talking to his disciples, he says this. They will know, he says this, people will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. They will know that you are my disciples, Jesus says, by the way you love each other. That's our work as believers. Shoot, when we're dealing, remember, we're dealing with interpersonal relationships. So he says that your work in your interpersonal relationships is to love each other the way that I have loved you. So that being said, 
we can see that because James is dealing with interpersonal relationships and he's not dealing with my relationship with God, this starts to make a little bit more sense. Because, yo, he is not, he's not saying that your faith requires works between you and God. But he is saying that your faith requires works between you and me. I'll say it this way. God does not, this is something my pastor says all the time and I love it. God does not need your works, but your neighbor does. God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. And because James is dealing with relationships here, this starts to make more sense. So I'll say it this way, and this is a really good way to make it just plain and clear. God knows that you are his disciples. So, so real quick, let's just relate it back to that verse, right? Where Jesus says, people will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. I'll say this. God knows that you are his disciple by your belief. We know that scripture is clear that salvation comes through believing. So God knows you're his disciple by your belief. People on earth, you and I, know that you are each other that you are God's disciple by your love by your works we know that your work is loving one another so you and I know that we are God's disciple by our love this is not dealing with our relationship with God this is dealing with our relationship with one another and when you see it through that lens it changes everything you don't believe me I'll prove it to you Romans chapter 3 it says this or I'm sorry Romans chapter 13 verse 10 it says this love does no wrong to a neighbor love therefore is the fulfillment of the law again even in this verse we're dealing with relationships love does no wrong to a neighbor love therefore is the fulfillment of the law if you're not seeing it i'll spell it out clearly to you faith without works is dead in dealing with my relationship with you you need to see that i love you by the things that I do. God does not. This is not dealing with God. This is dealing with you and me. When you see that, through that lens, it changes everything, man. It changes everything. It takes the pressure off. You don't have to worry about where your relationship with God stands. It's giving you a good framework to how to live in relationship with other people. Okay, y'all, I'm running out of time here, man. I'm running out of time here. I'm, I'm yapping and talking for too long on these verses. So I'm going to skip one. And if you want me to do another one of these episodes, let me know. DM me at Jaron underscore Archer and on Instagram. Tell me you want a couple more of these episodes and we'll continue to dive into specific pieces of scripture. I hope this is helpful for you. We're going to do one more today. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, y'all. If you hear my pages turning, it's because they are. 1 Corinthians, y'all. 1 Corinthians. We're going to go to chapter 6. We're going to go to verse 9. We're going to read verse 9 through 12. It says this. This is pretty scary. You ready? Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality, nor thieves, greedy people, nor drunkards, nor verbally abusive people, nor swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Wow. And that's even in the New Testament. This verse is really intimidating and it was for me for a really long time. I used to see this as a list of, man, if I do this, 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 and this, and this, I'm, you know, 
I'm out of luck. If I do this, if I, you know, if I'm a thief or I'm greedy or I'm a drunkard, if, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm abusive or I'm a swindler, I'm kind of out of luck. But there's so much good news behind this verse. This, again, does not have to be intimidating. And I'll tell you why. So let's get some context. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. So what is Paul dealing with? What is he talking about in this passage? He's talking about believers fighting with other believers. Okay. Now, it seems kind of hard to relate that to what this passage of Scripture is saying, but I promise it comes together. So Paul is dealing with believers fighting with other believers. So when it's read in it, when this whole passage is read in its entirety, listen, we can see that this is not Paul condemning these certain groups of people. This is not Paul condemning these certain groups of people that he mentions. But what is it? It is Paul reminding these believers at Corinth who they are. Paul is reminding these people of who they are. And I'll, I'll, I'll show you. I'll prove it to you. Okay? So, so, so Paul, he puts a pretty big list here. Right? I'll read a few of them off. He puts a pretty big list here of people who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God, which is pretty, you know, scary. Sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, swindlers, blah, 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 will not inherit the kingdom of God. Seems scary. And I'll say this. This is just my perspective on this verse, y'all. This is necessarily, I want you to interpret scripture your own way, but it's important to learn how to interpret it through the lens of the new covenant. So here's my interpretation of this scripture. Here's what I think Paul is saying. This is a pretty big list. And I'm pretty convinced that Paul put this pretty big list here. If we're talking about you know, that these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think Paul puts a pretty big list here because he includes every single one of us. If you look at it pretty closely, you can see that every single one of us are included in at least one of these people groups or one of these behaviors. Every single one of us are included in this list. And why does that matter? Why does that matter? Because Paul continues on to share some good news right after this. He continues on. So he, so let's just get this quick reminder, though, that he's talking about believers fighting with other believers. So he's saying, essentially, yo, why are you doing this acting like this is who you are? This is not who you are. And this is what he continues on to say. So he finishes saying in, in, the, the, in verse 10, he says, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says this, this is the key. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. I hope you're catching this. Paul is not saying this to intimidate this church at Corinth. He's saying, yo, that used to be who you are. You used to be swindlers. You used to be thieves. But that's not who you are anymore. He's saying God justified you. God washed you. God sanctified you. So this is so much not Paul condemning this group of people, but actually instilling identity into them. If you relate it and you see this through the lens of the cross, you can see that this is him pointing them back 
to the cross because the cross is where we find our identity. Jesus is where we find our identity and that is washed, that is cleansed, that is justified, that is sanctified. Paul is not condemning these people. He's encouraging them. And he's saying, yo, this isn't who you are. Why are you acting like something you're not? Sure, those people won't inherit the kingdom of God, but that's not you. And I want to encourage you right now, if you're a believer, that's not you. That's not who you are. Sure, you may act like it sometimes, but that's part of the journey of faith. That's not who you are. He says you were washed, and I'm speaking to you. You were washed. You were cleansed. You were justified. You were sanctified. You were made right before God. The moment you believed, you were made completely right before God. Your relationship with God is secure. Your relationship with God is approved. Your relationship with God is full uh, is full of, of, of uninterrupted union, your relationship with God cannot be destroyed by your behavior. That is good news, man. I'm getting hyped up in my closet today because, yo, this is not a condemning book. This is an encouraging book. And when you see these verses through the lens of the cross, you can see that this is all one massive story and it all points back to Jesus Christ. Ooh! man these verses are not condemning these verses are are, they don't have to be intimidating when you see it through the story of the gospel of god's grace it comes alive and you see that it's so encouraging and it all relates back to the story of god's grace y'all i hope this helped you today i'm out of time but i hope this helped you today i really uh, I really do hope that this helped you see how just a, just a little glimpse of how every single piece of the Bible all connects to the story of the gospel, all connects back to Jesus. Sure, there's plenty of, you know, things that may seem intimidating on the surface, may seem intimidating by the way people preach it. But, yo, if you take some time to filter it through the lens of the new covenant gospel, it changes everything. I hope this helped you. I really want to do another episode of this because I have a few other verses that I want to talk about. So do me a favor. If you have any that you think of, instead of just like the book of Revelation, that's a whole other thing on its own. But if you have one that you can think of, send it to me um, that you maybe, you know, find confusing, scary, intimidating. Um, Send it to me. Um, You can DM me on Instagram at Jaron underscore Archer. Also, if this kind of helps you see scripture through a new light and helps you kind of filter, you know, scripture through the lens of the cross, DM me too. Tell me, tell me about it. I want to hear stories from you um, and I want to hear how this is helping your life. So I thank you so much for listening in today. I can't wait to see you right back here for the next episode of What If I Told You How Religion Ruined Me and Jesus Saved Me. Y'all have an amazing week. All right.